again and welcome to our final day of this Mental Health Awareness Week podcast. This week we've talked about this thing we call mental health and how we can spot when it starts to slide, how we might recognise signs of emerging mental illness in ourselves or those around us. We've also acknowledged that that might be more likely to be happening right now in these times of worry, of daily death counts and concern over every cough or sneeze. Is that just a high pollen count or have I come into contact with that spiky demon we keep hearing so much about? Mounting anxieties over health, wealth and loved ones means it's more important than ever to keep in mind what we can do to try and offset those troubles, look after ourselves physically and mentally, cultivate positive well-being. It needs to become a habit, a routine. Brush your teeth, eat five a day, drink water, get some exercise, breathe fresh air, meditate, challenge our thinking, practice gratitude, do something fun. Because the signs are that we aren't going to wake up tomorrow and find everything back to normal. People hugging in the streets, crowding into bars and getting up up close and personal with each other's armpits on the bus. This is going to take time to unfold. Even if everything goes as well as can be hoped, we're looking at many months of further disruption. At the possibility of extended or maybe even irreversible change to some of the things we've come to see as our way of life. I can't tell you exactly what. My tarot cards are frustratingly low on detail. But today we're going to think a bit about the possibilities and how we can learn to live with them. We're currently moving into another stage of our country's response to this pandemic. When you hear this, things may have changed even further. But looking at the newly released guidance for workplaces and schools shows that if this is going to be effective and done properly by employers, It's going to involve a lot of work and change. We're not going back to business as usual anytime soon because we can't do that until we're sure it's safe. Level one of that new risk alert scale when COVID-19 is not present in this country or level two even, low number of cases and low transmission. Up until that point, some level of social distancing will still be necessary. So there will still be many things we can't do without risk. The work I do, training in enclosed meeting rooms with groups of people I've never met before, is probably going to have to be mainly online for a long time, unless you have an enormous space where everyone can sit two metres apart. And that's if I can get there on the trains. Unless, of course, we get a vaccine, one which is safe, 100% effective, and that might be a long way off. The Prime Minister noted last night that there is still no vaccine for the original SARS virus, which emerged in 2002. Granted, there's not been the same international focus on looking for one as it was not as virulent or as fatal an outbreak. There's so much we still don't know, most importantly possibly being whether a person who has had COVID-19 and recovered can get it again. And if they do, is it likely to be more or less severe? What will the physical and mental after effects of having the virus be? Many people can develop post-viral problems after glandular fever, which has a much less severe impact on our system. Issues with organ damage or autoimmune responses might become a lasting legacy, causing disability and challenges for individuals and society. It's worrying, as is the economic future. How can we get through this if we can't work, if we can't be as productive? What continuing support can the government offer? And what will be the eventual consequence of that? How big a dip or recession will we face? What will be the impact on the international economy, trade, diplomatic relations, travel? If people are to be quarantined for a fortnight on entering and, of course, returning to the country, no one's likely to be going abroad on holiday or business trips anytime soon. It's all very uncertain. And as human beings, we don't do well with uncertainty. We like to know what we're doing. 
We like to be able to predict because with unpredictability comes possible danger. All going back to that threat response, if we're in danger, we will try and plan the best way to get to safety. If we can't see what's ahead of us, we'll start to think of all the possibilities and plan for them. But because we have that negative bias, we'll have a tendency to think of the worst possible outcome first. We'll think about the potential danger or problem ahead so we can try and lessen its impact. We will often forget to think about the nine million other possibilities that may be just as or even more likely to happen. We can blow things out of proportion. Sometimes that's kind of sensible because though the risk of the terrible thing happening may be low, the impact it will have if it does is profound. Your house is unlikely to burn down, but it's sensible to have smoke alarms, maybe an extinguisher or fire blanket to reduce that risk, and insurance just in case it happens. Adding to the unavoidable uncertainty of a potentially fatal illness being in circulation and the uncertainty about our financial futures, the uncertainty of the lockdown has not been very helpful. Being brought in for a limited period and then extended, not knowing when it will end. To begin with, it fostered some false hope in some that it would be very short. And if you're constantly thinking next week we'll be taking you back to work, you don't really deal with the present reality, plan how to get through it. It remains permanently in flux. Now we have a roadmap of sorts, telling us what landmarks to look out for, which will indicate we're near our destination. But the main thing it's telling us is that the road is pretty long and we might have to replan our route at any time if the terrain is rougher than expected. That's slightly more certain uncertainty. It's telling us to buckle up for a bumpy ride. It's telling us to make the best of things, that we're going to have to accept changes to how we do things. Working from home as a first preference where possible. Where not possible, extensive social distancing, increased hygiene and protective equipment, segregation and safe transit measures until we get to that second alert level. The government has another alert system relating to terrorism. It's maybe worth remembering that we've been used to living with a varying level of uncertainty. We're currently in the middle range, substantial, where there's a strong possibility of an attack at any point. It has been higher in recent times, but not lower since before 9-11. We know it can go up and down. Whether we modify our behaviour accordingly, I don't know. But if there were terrorists killing and maiming hundreds of people every day, we'd probably be in a similar situation as we are now, being asked to stay home for our own safety until we knew the danger had passed. We know that we're returning to a world which has changed, at least for the time being. Many of us aren't so great with change. It's why the whole concept of change management is such an industry and business. It's also a money pit because change is constant. From technological developments, economic turmoils, to social norms and what is acceptable and expected in the workplace. Shifting attitudes and beliefs of different generations or sections of society. Political disruption. We just celebrated the 75th anniversary of VE Day. The post-war years, for people in the affluent West at least, have been simultaneously a period of amazing change and development but also unprecedented stability, peace between neighbours, collaboration and trade. That stability has to have at least in part enabled the social change and increased prosperity and progress we've enjoyed. Technology and information is speeding up. We were already being warned that a future of increased automation was around the corner. This reminder of the vulnerability of human operators can only have brought that closer. Change and uncertainty are scary and don't help with our anxiety levels. But it helps if we can remind ourselves that change isn't always bad. It can also be opportunity, 
opportunity to make things better, to alter aspects of our lives and societies which aren't working for everyone, to build brighter futures. So what changes seem fairly certain at this stage? Less face-to-face -face interaction with family and friends. It's going to be a while before we're able to spend time at close quarters. That could mean ongoing practical problems for those who use grandma and granddad as childcare. Carrying on with homeworking or edging back into a workplace which is changed as much as is possible to enable social distancing and hygiene, getting used to wearing masks and gloves. Transport and travel will be tricky if, like me, you rely on buses and trains. Foreign travel off the cards for quite a while. But also, even though we're now told we could drive as far as we liked for exercise, we can't stay for a holiday. Hotels, restaurants, pubs, leisure centres, cinemas, theatres, sports, music and cultural events. Finding a balance between social distancing and financial viability will be a challenge for many, even when they do begin to open their doors. So probably more online or televised entertainment, takeaway and delivery. Schools may start gradually to open for some age groups, but still more are going to be at home, needing supervision and support while they engage with remote teaching. Even those children who do go back to school, assuming their parents feel safe to send them, will be having a different experience than they might be used to, or than their predecessor enjoyed, as classes are split and kept away from each other. While parents might be keen to get their kids back to halt the disruption to their education and also allow them to focus on returning to work, most of our little ones will be missing their friends, and if a return to school doesn't allow them to interact, that will be hard. We have to remember that those of us who are higher risk are still meant to be shielding, and if any of us get symptoms, we're meant to self-isolate for 7 to 14 days or until we get a negative test. If we're going to do this properly, many workplaces will need to change their attitudes towards sickness, to consider the different needs of different sections of the workforce who fall into different categories. Having worked to try and ensure disabled staff get the support they need, I know some employers are significantly better at this than others. to have to start dealing with risks sooner or later. Some of us have been all along if we've been frontline workers or had to work in essential ongoing services or sectors. We will all have different ideas of when is the right time no doubt. Some employers who can afford to do so and think the government is moving too quickly are still supporting staff to stay home. Some people might take the choice to stay home even if they're unpaid or risk their job. Jobs aren't easy to replace but more so than lives. Where the danger feels real and present, that might feel sensible, but there will come a time when we do have to re-engage with the world in some way. We all live with risk every day. There are a million ways to die or be injured, being run over, mugged or assaulted, falling downstairs, being crushed by a falling object, caught in a gas explosion, having an allergic reaction, a terrorist attack. We engage in activities which increase our risk of death coming sooner than it might. Drinking alcohol, eating unhealthily, smoking, taking drugs, risky sports. We wash our hands after going to the loo, or at least we should, to avoid the risk of getting sick from germs or passing them on to other people. That's nothing new. Just as a new player in town, which is more virulent. Again, the peculiar character of our slice of history, as well as relative peace and prosperity. And yes, of course, I know there are exceptions and many who are not enjoying much of that prosperity. I'm speaking relatively. As well as peace and prosperity, we've had health, not least because of the wonderful National Health Service, 
which has meant that no one in this country has had to decide between going to the doctor and paying the rent since 1948. It's not perfect, but this crisis would take on a whole different complexion if people were putting off seeking care in the first place, or if on departing ICU after managing to survive the most dreadful assault in your systems, you were met not with applause, but a bill for tens of thousands of pounds. But on top of that, we've benefited from antibiotics and vaccines, which have enabled us to survive illnesses that swept our ancestors away in tidal waves. The threat of antibiotic resistance is ever increasing. And as we're finding out, novel viruses are always a risk. So we have to make our peace with it. The government is clear in its guidance that health and safety law stands, that employers are expected to take all reasonable measures to ensure staff are safe when carrying out their duties. No one is expected to go into an unsafe environment. If you don't feel safe, you must discuss with your employer what you feel is lacking. If nothing can be done, alternative work might be offered, which you might feel more comfortable with or which you could do from home. If you don't think your employer is doing their bit, then you should contact the health and safety executive and see if they can help. You have a role to play yourself, of course, making sure you follow the guidance, taking steps to ensure you feel as safe as you can at all stages of your day and play your part even if you aren't personally that bothered. Your actions have an impact on everyone around you, both in terms of infection risk. If you don't practice social distancing and are meeting up with lots of people, lots of potential sources of infection, then you take that infection to someone at work who is doing their very best because they're worried about their risk profile, you've undone all their good work. You might get to make that decision to take that risk yourself, but it's unfair and selfish to take it for other people. Your unpredictable behaviour will also be raising anxiety levels for other people who are struggling to get back to normal. Being able to control our risk levels is important for feeling safe. When I go to the supermarket, it's a completely different experience if people keep their distance than if someone is barging around not paying attention to anything except their own shopping list and desire to get through. Consideration for each other, openness about how we're feeling and the problems we're facing, honesty about what we can or can't do, what we're prepared to do, and being prepared to try doing things in different ways will all help make this unsettling period more manageable. Employers have it in their power to make this easy or really hard. Whatever the government says, whatever they are or are not required to do by law, at the end of the day, it's each organisation who will be implementing guidance and in deciding how they're going to deal with this situation. Some businesses need to get things back up and running as soon as possible or else face going under, I get that. But how we do it matters. There's the letter and then there's the spirit of the law. Organisations can have policies which look great on paper, but unless the meaning and motivation and importance of those policies is really understood and believed by managers, they may not be implemented properly. If you want to help your staff return to work and manage their anxieties and difficulties, treat them fairly. Remember, we're each human beings with our own concerns and circumstances. Make your workplace as safe as possible and engage with staff about whether you're doing enough or if there are any problems. Some people will have ongoing anxieties from this, maybe even post-traumatic stress for some. People who had mental health issues beforehand may have found they became worse throughout the lockdown, through isolation, increased worries, or lack of access to support or coping mechanisms, either social or self-care, or mental health services being interrupted. Some might have lent too heavily on unhealthy coping mechanisms like alcohol or drugs. Even those who actually found the change of pace and lack of usual stressors helped their mental state may be overwhelmed when normal life rushes back in. 
Providing support in the workplace will be a huge help if you can do it. NHS mental health services were pretty stretched before this started. The demand from healthcare workers has skyrocketed, given the things that they have had to face. So if employers can find ways to meet the needs of their staff, that will both ease the strain on the health system and also possibly help your staff recover more quickly. That support might be about educating your staff to understand what they're going through, providing mental health first aiders who have a little more insight and can provide an informal place to talk and assistance finding appropriate next steps. Or it might be offering counselling, advice and support, engaging occupational health to help people work out adjustments and coping strategies to help them overcome their difficulties. Set up staff networks and peer support groups. Engage with local NHS and third sector organisations. If you aren't financially able to offer actual services, you can make sure people have information about what's on offer in your area and support and time to access them if necessary. Think about how you can lower other stresses in your staff's lives. Childcare, travel, finance. Introduce things to help people look after themselves, build connection and alleviate stress. The less they have to spend their time and energy worrying about things, the more energy they will have for what you need them to do. At some level, we have to accept that there's going to be a risk. We might have to go out and interact with others before it's as safe as we might like it to be. In some ways, the more we're able to protect ourselves from that, the harder it may become. If we're working from home and able to keep doing so, then our anxiety at venturing back out may become greater as time goes on, despite the likelihood that risk is falling over time. We run the risk of developing a phobia of going out. When we have fear of something, it's only improving to ourselves that we can do or encounter that thing without harm, or we can overcome it, that we start to conquer that fear. The more we avoid something, the more we are reinforcing or underlying that fear. If you encounter a snarling tiger, become afraid and run away, you reinforce that the tiger is dangerous and you've kept yourself safe by running away, so that's good. You'll respond the same way the next time you see a snarling tiger. But if you see a small fluffy bunny rabbit and respond with the same fear and you run away or avoid the rabbit, you also reinforce that fear, say it was right. Whereas if you'd stayed to watch the rabbit hop about and eat its dandelion leaves, your brain would have re-evaluated and decided that maybe you don't need to be afraid of bunnies. It's unlikely to abandon its caution straight away, but the more we're around rabbits and don't come to any mortal harm, the more likely we get over it. So each time I go out for my weekly shopping and I get stressed and panicked, I'm underlining my fear. Each time I look at the death and infection rates, the impact of the illness, I'm underlining why I'm afraid. But each time I realise that I'm healthy, that if I were going to get ill from that particular journey out, it would have happened by now, I'm reassured. Each time I make sure I'm taking precautions and I see others doing the same, I'm reassured. If I see my employers and colleagues taking things seriously, showing their care about my well-being, I'm reassured. The fear lessens. It may not necessarily go away, but it gets to a level where I can accept it. It is at root, just like stepping out of the door any time, the acceptance that bad stuff can happen. One day I might not come home. One day I might not wake up. Ditto my loved ones. If not corona, something. If not today, some time. I struggled for a long time with death anxiety and later health anxiety. I would torment myself with worry about the fact of death, fear of dying, not wanting to end. 
fear that every little ache, pain, lump or bump was a sign of that which will eventually carry me off. I was severely depressed. I didn't know how anything could help. Counselling couldn't convince me that death wasn't going to happen because clearly it was someday. And then one night I had a thought, an epiphany. While being tormented by death, I wasn't suicidal. I knew I didn't want to die. But I thought to myself, why not? You might as well. Because it doesn't matter if you live to be 105. If you carry on as you are, you won't have lived. You will have let this dreadful fear of death stop you from doing anything, seeing anything, enjoying anything. If you really don't want to die, you have to let yourself live. So that when it does come, you will have as few regrets as possible. You will have left nothing unsaid. You will have cherished those you care for, tasted, tried, enjoyed, created, laughed, cried, and really and truly lived. That's the key. To look after ourselves, to keep ourselves safe, to figure out what life looks like when we're well and truly thriving and do our best to enable that in our lives. Manage your fears so they don't overwhelm you. If you struggle with that, seek some help. Or go and try and learn some techniques that might help you step back from the panic and think more calmly. Grounding exercises, breathing exercises. A useful one is to check in with all your senses. When we're panicking, we're all up in our head, in our thoughts. If we reconnect with the body, it distracts and refocuses us. So take a few breaths and look around. Find five distinct things to focus your sight on. It might be useful to look for things of different colours. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Next, focus on touch. Can you find four different things to touch? Something rough, something smooth, something soft, something cold. Now listen out. What can you hear? Are there three different sounds? Maybe the air conditioning, birdsong, someone talking. After sound, move to smell. Two different scents. You can try your body, clothing. I don't recommend sniffing others. Or you might deliberately carry around something for this purpose, a body spray, essential oils, an orange or some chocolate. And that can also be handy for the final step, taste. One taste to savour in your mouth. Doing this exercise sort of properly and over maybe five or ten minutes can bring you down from a peak of stress or anxiety, take you out of your thoughts for a while, and when you come back to them, you might feel more calm, more able to take stock and decide whether you're thinking clearly. Make a plan to act or seek help with your worries. Balance is key. Keeping our worries in check. Not being blind to risk. Taking sensible precautions, but not being so afraid we forget to live. In order to thrive at any point, we need to keep our life in balance. Make sure that we don't allow stresses to overwhelm us that we manage them, get help with them, and that we offset them with self-care, relaxation, exercise and other strategies. That we get professional help if we need it for both physical and mental health. Keep our work life and home life in balance. Make sure we live enough now today that we enjoy our relationships with family and make the most of what health we have, while also setting something aside in the hope of old age. As COVID fades into the background, it will leave a mark on our consciousness. Even if we do find a vaccine for this, we know there's always a chance that something else is around the corner. So maybe we start to build this consideration into our lives, into our working practices or how we make our income. If our job is something that doesn't very easily survive a lockdown, 
Maybe we want to cultivate a backup plan, either doing different things part time or something we can pick up if needed. Maybe this becomes a question we ask in interviews. What are your contingency plans for supporting staff through lockdown situations? We can't guarantee the world of work is going to be the same. Many industries may suffer from reduced trade and that will probably lead to job losses at some point, whatever support government is offering to keep things going for now. Changing dynamics in the workforce may be interesting. Now their importance to the functioning of our economy is undeniable, which of course it always should have been, will our essential workers realise the strength of their case to seek better terms and conditions? Will people recognise that unionised workplaces were in many cases better looked after than those that were not? Now many people have faced the reality of universal credit, will they continue to think it's a fair system? Will some employers seek to challenge employment or health and safety law if we find ourselves flooded with people seeking work? The world is enjoying a break from the pollution and noise of heavy traffic, though new recommendations to avoid public transport, if possible, may reverse that somewhat. Will this give us more impetus to call for more environmentally friendly means of transport? Will people who didn't before finally see the point? Will we also recognise that this has proved that the individual can do only so much? While the improvement's significant, this is reminding us that the vast majority of emissions come from industry, agriculture and energy. Will more be done to improve in those sectors too? It could be a crucial moment in history. Great progress could be made in working conditions, standards of living, ways of life. But I fear it won't come without a fight. Even with some of those potentially positive changes, they might mean looking at life a very different way. We might need to revisit our expectations, our standards, our plans. As I've said before, this is a really good time to look at what we're enjoying, valuing and what we miss. All of these things teach us how we can try and shape our lives for the better. Things which are causing us sadness, pain and discomfort show us where the work needs to be done. We might not be ready to do that work yet. Or able to make big changes if we find that it's hard to hold on to some of the positives when the wheel starts to turn again. But it's good to know these things, to think, I really like being able to go for a walk with my kids in the daylight, or being able to hear birdsong, or do something more creative or practical, getting more exercise or just chilling out. Or maybe it's I don't feel valued enough, or I wish I could work from home, or I'm burnt out from dealing with this situation. All might be motivators for us to look to different options in our futures find a way to make change work if we aren't able to do it straight away. So that's it for the final episode of this Mental Health Awareness Week podcast. If you've made it through to the end with me, well done. It's not easy to concentrate with everything that's going on. But thank you for taking the time to learn a little bit more about how to look after your own and each other's well-being. Remember the theme of kindness. It is our greatest gift and we can perform wonders when we extend it to ourselves and those around us. If people are out of sorts, try to understand where they're coming from, what they're going through and find out how you can help. We all need to be encouraged to be open about how we're feeling so we realise that we're not alone. None of us needs to go through this alone. Try anything, try everything. Talk to your family, your friends, your workmates. Or if not, remember that there are professionals and volunteer groups all over the country who are there to help. Remember to check if your workplace offers support or services that might be quicker to access than the NHS. Please have hope and let people help. If you're interested in looking again at some of these topics and learning more, look out for mental health awareness and mental health first aid training coming soon.
If you're struggling yourself, speak to your GP, local support groups or the Samaritans. Call 116-123, email joe at samaritans.org or text the Shout Crisis text line on 85258. There are a great many fantastic resources on the internet relating to mental health. The NHS, mental health charities such as Mind, Rethink, Sane and Calm. I'll provide some links in the show notes, but there are thousands to choose from. People out there who are going through similar struggles and may be able to help. Join me on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram for more mental health and wellbeing related content. Meanwhile, take care, look after yourself and each other. And let's make the world after Covid a kinder one than before.